Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new. Because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun. FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who was college roommates with Pepper Brooks. He is the captain. FNA, Cotton. FNA. It's good to be seen. Good to see you. Thanks for listening, and thanks for telling a friend. Today, we are very happy to be featuring Polygamy Porter from Wasatch Brewery in beyond beautiful Salt Lake City, Utah. This is a smooth, easy-drinking porter with silky hints of caramel and chocolate ABV 5% garage grade, 4 out of 5 bottle caps. Here's some Garage Army shouts. First, cheers to Jill in Ridley, Pennsylvania. And a big cheers to Maggie in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Next up, a couple of awesome Oregonians. We have Ahmed and Mary in Lake Oswego. And a big shout to Lisa in Wieland, Germany. We also have Heather at the Utah Brewers Cooperative. A big cheers to Heather. And last but certainly not least, we have Vishal in Chicago. Everyone we just mentioned went to truecrimegarage.com and contributed to this week's beer fund. And for that, we thank you. And make sure you check out our limited edition computer shirt. We have about, I want to say, 20, 30 left. So make sure you go to the website and order your computer shirt. That's if you studied computer at truecrimegarage.com. And that's enough of the business. All right, everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. I couldn't stay. I had no choice. I didn't have the money. 
you, you know, not even that. Listen, listen to me now. I couldn't let you perform those things on me. Listen to me. All I asked you to do was look in your room. You wouldn't do that. You know, you're really lucky I'm talking to you now, so. Well, I'm sorry, so. So then, you know what? Then, um, then hire an escort, and you can watch an escort, and I'll show you what happens to an escort. There you go. Then you have to worry about it. Yo, do you hear yourself? Yeah, why? Did you mean that all escorts get murdered? Or no, something bad happens to them? No, that's not what I said. What I'm saying to you was, you didn't want to go through with the act, okay? But you wanted to see what happened. I wanted to you to, like, improvise. Guess what? All you have to do is you come back to Colorado, you hire an escort, and I'll show you exactly what happened. And you can just be a, a bystander, okay? So you can look in the paper, you can, you know, talk to someone and say, this is what I want. The only thing that means a damn thing to me is my daughter. And I don't know where in the hell she ended up. Your other daughter talk to me. My other daughter? Yeah. You you want my other daughter Maybe she, to talk to you. Maybe she'll be reasonable. <sighs> what are you going to do? Ask her to strip? You have to understand. I have to protect myself here, so. It doesn't sound at all, Joe, like... You're protecting yourself. It sounds to me like you you were doing it for gratification or, or just to, I don't know. It just doesn't sound like somebody that cares about you. It doesn't make sense to you. It just seems kind of crazy, but that's just how it is. Are you working for Jenny or against her? I'm working for her, but you have to realize some things that I, I think are important that you know are classified, and I will be in huge trouble if I tell you. So I have to show you. Well, I don't I get it. That. What do? What can you show me, Joe? Listen, I gotta let you go. I don't get it. What can you show me, Joe? I'll see you later. Bye-bye. Joe. Joe. Scott Lee Kimball was born on September 21st, 1966 in Boulder, Colorado. His parents were Virgil and Barb Kimball. From what we could find, it looks like Scott was not one of the popular kids at school. He attended Lafayette Elementary and Middle Schools. He was described by a classmate as quiet. Now, Barb and Virgil divorced when Scott was 10 years old. Barb fell in love with another woman. Virgil and Scott's brother, Brett, moved to Montana, and Scott stayed behind in Colorado. But Scott left high school after only one month. Eventually, after a few years, he relocated to join his father and Brett. But listen to this, Captain, because we often see this in these types, a bad omen, a sign that something is just not right. Police were called to Scott's home during a strange episode in Scott's teenage years when he was shooting his father's gun out of one of the windows. He was shooting at neighbors' homes. Now, it's not clear exactly what was going on here. Was he actually trying to shoot someone, or was this just some kind of weird thing or maybe a revenge-type thing? I don't know. But regardless, this is a significant event, and at the very least could be categorized as extremely reckless behavior. Scott attended high school in Hamilton, Montana, a town of 4,000 people, but he dropped out just shy of graduating. He worked as a guide. He guided clients on big game hunting expeditions. He also made some really bad choices, not just the shooting at houses incident. Scott was arrested for stupid things like knocking over mailboxes. In June of 1988, at the age of 21, he was arrested and convicted of felonious passing of bad checks. His three-year sentence was deferred, however, on the condition that he stay above the law. 
Scott, like many others, he likes spending money that he did not have. He was arrested again in October of 88 for passing more bad checks. But because this felony conviction occurred in a different county, his sentence was once again deferred, and it didn't activate his previous conviction. So Scott, to say it simply, got off very easy in both of these situations. He continued to rack up arrests, although not all of them resulted in convictions. He was arrested in October of 88 again, this time for stealing a fishing pole, two rifles, and a shotgun, and a set of golf clubs. This was from a residence or multiple residences in Broomfield, Colorado. He was turned loose, which is surprising to me and I'm sure everybody else out there, considering that the part of this theft involved a gun. Right. Uh, he was arrested again in March, uh, this time for attempted theft, and receives a one-year unsupervised probation and a $232 fine. So, again, this is just really no real punishment at all for what we're seeing is continued bad behavior. Right, and if you steal a gun or you steal some checks and they just slap you on the wrist, well, why not do it again? Because you probably got away with it a couple of times before you actually got caught. Yeah. If, if consequences dictate my course of action, it's only wrong if I get caught or if I, if I don't like the consequences, right? He's not really being punished. So Scott continued to self-destruct and actually he even attempted to end his life at one point. This was while on a hunting trip with his brother. Remember his brother, Brett. Scott was 23 at this time. He went to his motel room and he put a rifle to his head and he actually pulled the trigger and the gun was loaded. The bullet ripped a hole in his forehead as it bounced off of his skull. Scott was in critical condition for many days. Of course, he was not in a good place psychologically, as we can all see. This led to the discovery of years of abuse that took place during his teen years. So what we would, we would find out here, Captain, is that Scott was the victim of a sexual predator. This started when he was just about 10 years old, mm -hmm. when he and his seven-year-old cousin were tricked or befriended or whatever you want to call it by a 41-year-old computer programmer, his name Theodore Payton. Now, Peyton was a neighbor of Scott's grandmother's in a trailer park in Nederland, Colorado. And we know how this goes. We know how this typically starts off, right? Peyton is, he, he befriends these children and he is taking them places, giving them money, takes them bowling, you know, hanging out, playing video games. Right. But pretty soon he started inviting them to his cabin, this one at a time. You know, you don't want both of them there. And now he's doing things that are just downright wrong. He's giving them alcohol. This leads to, oh, getting out the camera. Let's take some photographs. And, of course, eventually this all leads to rape and outright molestation. Right. According to the two boys... This continued for years with the boys and their families being threatened by Peyton, right? So he's kind of controlling them by, by not only molesting and raping these boys, but on top of that, he's telling them, if you say anything, I, I'm going to hurt you and I'm going to hurt your family. Well, initially it looks like these crimes of check fraud and stuff are just a crime of greed and maybe not a call for help. Now, when you dive into this section, you go, well, maybe, maybe these were cries for help, but there was no punishment. So nobody was coming to his help. Cry for help. Or sometimes, unfortunately, when these things, when somebody's abused in this manner or really many other manners, to put it frankly, in their formidable years of coming up as a teenager, especially with this stuff starting when he's 10 or 11 years old. They could have mind-altering effects that last a lifetime for somebody. 
we mentioned that he was threatening the boys and threatening their families. Uh, from my understanding, Captain, the, the threats were as great as as possible murder, death threats, shooting these kids or shooting their family. Right. The cousin later told police about the abuse, and he said that it happened so often that he eventually lost count of the number of incidents that took place. The situation continued, as we said, until the boys reached their later teen years. Now, remember, Scott is not living in the area of his grandmother, so his situation is a little different than than the cousin who was also being abused. Mm -hmm. But when Scott would come back to visit grandma and when he would come back to visit other family, the abuse was still taking place when he would return to that area. And you see a lot of children describe their predators as the devil so imagine that the devil is doing these horrible things to you and then on top of that saying hey if you tell anybody i'm going to kill you and i'm going to kill your whole family apparently this situation continued until the boys reached their later teen years when they were actually able to stand up for themselves but as we said this did not emerge publicly until scott was 23 when he tried to shoot himself in the head Right. So in light of his and the cousin's allegations, which were brought to light by therapy Scott underwent after the suicide attempt, the Boulder County Sheriff's Office investigated Peyton, and they were able to bring some charges against this man. In 1991, a jury convicted Peyton of six counts of sexual assault on a child. He was sentenced to seven years. Apparently, he was released after five. He returned to the area where he had lived when he was abusing the boys and lived out his remaining days there. In a letter to the court objecting to a sentence reduction for Peyton, Scott Kimball wrote the following, quote, Ted Peyton denied me my right to a normal, healthy, innocent childhood. Because of Ted Peyton's selfishness and his need for sexual gratification, he has damaged my life forever, end quote. Now, recovered from his suicide attempt, Scott relocated to Spokane, Washington in the early 1990s. He obtained employment in the timber business out there. He brought along with him his girlfriend. This is Larissa Hentz, who he met in Montana. In 1993, the two were married. Scott is now 27 at this point on our timeline. Now, this young new couple... They had two sons, one in late of 1993 and one in 1996. Mm -hmm. It doesn't sound like things panned out in the timber trade there because Scott and Larissa filed for bankruptcy in June of 1996, and the couple divorced in 1997. Later, Larissa would reveal some details of of her married life uh, to Scott Kimball and says that Scott was not operating within the law. Scott's past of his, you know, modus operandi of defrauding people and stealing funds continued during the course of their marriage. According to Larissa, he engineered scam after scam and had people constantly chasing after him, trying to collect money that he frauded them out of or stole from them. And possibly Um, a reason why he moved to Washington in the first place. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, though, too, as we said, he he always managed to avoid actual jail or prison time. But mm-hmm. this would this would end in September of 1997 when he did serve 27 days in jail for uh, unknown offenses. I do not know what right. the, the the charges were. Now we're making it out 27 days isn't that long well exactly i don't know what the charge would have been it could have been something that's a that's a hiccup that's a vacation pretty minor um well yeah not one that i want to take though um we're making it out as though scott is some kind of low-level con artist who you know just happened to get away with check cashing scams and fraudulent money making schemes but what I believe that we will see here, Captain, that the the truth of the matter is that Scott's he's pretty talented as a con artist. And I think what we're gonna see is that his con artist skills 
might be off the charts. And, mm. You know, everyone who met him, even those I'll judge that determined to see him in prison for the remainder of his days, begrudgingly admits that Scott was the best at this. Uh, universally, he they say he was liked, he was jovial, friendly, and seemingly trustworthy. This is how Scott was described time and time again, over and over by these people that, that knew him and met him throughout his life. Well, you can tell even by his later interviews that there is a brain inside his head. Yeah, and what we will see as we go through this is he truly just, he snowed people. He befriended people, made them feel special, built up their trust, and then he cheated them. Yeah, but he's no Frank Cabin now. What happens next on the Scott timeline gives us a clear-cut example of how trustworthy he really seemed to be. In the spring of 1999, Scott Kimball agreed to work for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms as an informant on a stolen guns investigation. Yes, this is an agency of our federal government taking on a con man, a scam artist, a fraudulent check writer into their fold. Now, it's not really clear how this arrangement came about, and it did not result in any arrest, although Scott reportedly gave the ATF some names. But not only did Scott get personal satisfaction from being a trusted informant for the feds, he got paid for it, a grand total of $1,865. The relationship was over by November of 1999, but Scott Kimball benefited both, as we said, financially, but also in the terms of establishing goodwill with the feds. By December of 1999, it was apparent that Scott was not only a scam artist, but he was also violent. On December 8th, his ex-wife Larissa reported to Spokane police that Scott kidnapped her at gunpoint, raped her, and forced her and the couple's two sons to accompany him back to Montana. No charges were filed for this incident. And th th there's a lot of speculation here as to why there were no charges filed. I don't know that I feel super comfortable getting into it, knowing as little as we do about this situation. Um, but we would see this one more time. This when Larissa again called police this time on December 18th, uh, saying that Scott had broke into her house that night and held her at gunpoint. Then he made her take a bath and stole money from her purse. Again, no case, no charges were brought forward in this incident as well. Now, remember the two suspended sentences for convictions for passing bad checks that... Wait, hold he... he Go over that again. He, he broke in, made her take a bath after another sexual assault, and there's and there's no charges whatsoever. That's correct. It's ridiculous. Again, I I don't want to speculate as to why there were no charges. Both of these situations we know very little about. Yeah. So I mean, it could be could be as simple as something as she called to the police and then later says, I don't want to press any charges. That's why I don't want to get into the speculation of it. Yeah. I don't, I don't, we can't fault the, the police department. If the, the person that notifies them later then says, no, I don't want to, I don't want to bring any charges. Well, no, you can fault them on some level because there's a possibility that she just doesn't feel safe enough that she can press the charges. That, that no, like if I, she if, I, if I, she presses the charge that this guy's an animal and and look what he already did to me he might come back and and kill me. I agree, but I, I think that it's irresponsible of myself to lay blame to someone or or an organization with with knowing nothing really about the situation. Yeah, well, let's not lay blame to to the organization, but let's let's lay blame on the the idea that we we know this situation happened and we don't know why it went down this way. But well, that's why I don't want to lay but it's blame. shitty. Because I don't know that it right, happened. Right. I don't know that it happened. So uh, I want to go back to the two suspended sentences for uh, the, the bad checks that took place in 1988 when Scott was just 21. So he finds himself in jail 
once again, this time in January of 2000, this time for violating his probation. Remember, he got probation for those charges. Mm -hmm. He violated his probation. This is for traveling and also for failing to report. Now, finally, a little justice here. Uh, This takes place in April of 2000. A judge threw the book at him. Scott was sentenced to 10 years in Montana State Prison, this for violating those probations. Now, five years of this sentence were suspended, but Scott was looking at five years of hard time, five years in the clink. District Judge Henson wrote of Scott, quote, the defendant is impossible to supervise in a community setting. You're irresponsible untruthful, and simply do what you want to do regardless of the rules and conditions imposed by this court. Then even more charges were brought against him, this time for three counts of felony check forgery that occurred in 1999 in Spokane. His additional conviction piled up eight more months onto his prison sentence. This is where the story really starts to gain some momentum here, Captain. Scott's sentence, his five years, eight months, with the five years suspended, actually only resulted in him serving 15 months. In July of 2001, he was relocated to a pre-release center in Helena, Montana. He was permitted to get a job on the outside and just report back to the center when not at work. Scott landed himself a job as a cashier at the easy stop gas station. But within just a couple of weeks, Scott decided a change of scenery would be nice. On July 29th, Scott was working alone at the gas station. Let's quickly review what the good judge said of Scott. Remember saying he was impossible to supervise in a community. He's irresponsible, untruthful, and simply does not. He simply does what he wants regardless of the rules. Well, the district judge Henson was what we call here in the garage exactly right. So while working at the station alone on the 29th of July, Scott lifted $677 from the register. He stole a work truck and he took off for parts unknown. Lock your doors. I imagine there was several Slim Jims and a big gulp stolen from that gas station as well that didn't go reported. Right. And that's the real crime here. Well, now, Scott, you are a wanted man. A warrant was issued for the arrest of Scott Lee Kimball. But where did Scott hightail it to on the run from the law in this stolen truck? Where else but the furthest place away he could think of? Alaska. It's not known how Scott managed to get across the Canadian border, but knowing his charisma and charm, he probably just sweet-talked his way in there. And... It didn't really take long for him to turn up in Alaska, Captain. This is because he could not resist falling back on his old ways, writing bad checks. This time, Scott assumed the identity of Brett Kimball, his brother. In the few months since his escape, Brett wrote $25,000 in counterfeit checks, collected the cash, and had landed himself a fiancé. As far as this woman, whose name is Catherine Curtis, was concerned Scott was a man named Brett Kimball and they were in love and living in a hotel room where Scott was eventually found and arrested during a raid along with $11,300 in cash. Well, it just proves that love is the biggest con of all. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. 
one in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, cheers, mates. Happy St. Patrick's Day to everybody. Yeah, cheers. And uh, if you're looking for a computer shirt, check out the store page. Also, wash your hands and be nice to each other.
Yeah, wash wash your hands. Don't touch your face. All right. We are going to do a little bouncing around here through a few years on our timeline. But while while this is not going to be in chronological order, this order makes sense to me. So we're going to roll with it because of the activities and Scott's actions. I guess what I'm trying to say here, Captain, is pay much less attention to the actual dates that we say, but pay more attention to Scott's actions as we go through this piece of the story. Scott, of course, was not happy sitting in jail, and he managed to come up with some excitement for himself, you know, always seeking the limelight and backslapping from authorities. Scott snitched that his cellmate, one Arnold Flowers, who was in for fraud, had asked him to hire a hitman to murder a federal judge, a prosecutor, and two witnesses. Mm. So Scott also named Arnold's girlfriend as a co-conspirator in this whole thing. And sure enough... A press release by the U.S. Department of Justice dated March 22, 2002, states that Flowers and his girlfriend were indicted for plotting to kill a judge, a prosecutor, and a witness in the fraud case. So according to the Department of Justice release, Flowers had provided a handwritten note of four intended victims to an intermediary who was to make contact with a hitman. Of course, this intermediary was Scott. The plot went so far as to see the girlfriend go to a hotel room to meet the person she believed to be a hitman and pay him a down payment for the murders. The Department of Justice release concludes, quote, the investigation leading to the arrest was the result of a cooperative effort of the United States Secret Service, Federal Bureau of Investigation, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and the United States Marshals Service, end quote. What, what's really going on here, exactly, is what we have to kind of look at this situation and kind of examine it, right? Yeah. Do we think that Scott just stumbled into a murder-for-hire plot and decided to sing like a bird and rat on his cellmate for the good of the land? I'm thinking probably not. Mm -hmm. So here's what I think probably happened here, Captain. I think Scott may have figured out a way to kind of orchestrate this whole thing in a way of saying, you know, if he starts telling his cellmate, hey, I I know hitmen or, or I know people that will, will kill somebody for, for money, you know, I can put out a contract on someone and this guy who's in sitting in jail, sitting in prison starts mouthing off saying, Hey, I'd like to kill that judge that put me in here. Oh, and by the way, I'd like to kill that prosecutor that put me in here. And they wouldn't have been able to put me away if it wasn't for those two witnesses. Right. And I think this, this handwritten note, I call in a question too. Is it possible that, that Scott manufactured that note? and provided it as some piece of evidence against these individuals. What I'm getting at here is, look, there, there's a good chance that his, his cellmate probably did want to kill these people and had intentions too, especially after Scott tells them, Hey, I know how to, to set something like this up. But is this, this is, seems to me more about, you know what? I'm in prison how can I weasel my way out of here as fast as possible? I'm going to turn on this dude and get in good with, with the authorities. Right. Scott went on to testify at the trial, which took place in 2003, and the pair was convicted of witness tampering, but they were acquitted of the murder for hire charges. Now, Scott was paid. This really sucks. Scott was paid $18,000 by the FBI for his cooperation as a witness in the case against Flowers and his girlfriend. That's so stupid. That's a lot of rolling papers. Yeah. In October of 2001, this is before... It's a lot of Slim Jim. Yeah, this is before the, the Flowers murder plot that we just discussed. Assistant U.S. Attorney Tom Wales, he's 49 years old. He's a father of two. He's killed at his home in Seattle, Washington. Someone shot through a basement window 
and shot him while he was sitting at a desk down there in his basement. We know from what we could find that Scott was in the Seattle area in the fall of 2001. This was just for a short time. This is when he opened up a bogus Wells Fargo account under the name Brett Kimball, his brother's name. He would later tell federal authorities that he had information about the Wells murder. Now, I should point out that this case technically is unsolved to this day. The Wells murder case is still unsolved. Investigators eventually began to suspect that Scott actually may have had something to do with the murder, either himself or through somebody else. Although, if that's true, the motive would be truly unknown. It, we, we could speculate, mm-hmm. but there doesn't seem to be an obvious motive here. Now, according to a book written by Scott's cousin, the book is titled SLK Serial Killer, Scott was working on a fishing boat in Seattle in the fall of 2001, and Scott was arrested in Alaska this in November of 2001. He used information about the Wales murder case to play the FBI gleaning whatever information he could about the case off of the internet. He convinced authorities that he had overheard a couple of inmates talking about the Wells case and that he might be able to offer them information about this Wells case. Mm -hmm. So Scott starts feeding the FBI bogus information. He strung them along pretty good meeting with agents a number of times, including one three day meeting in Seattle that took place from February 24th, to the 27th of 2003. Well, let's think about this for a second. I need an informant. I know that this guy is a criminal or a career-long con man. Do you really mess with a con man? I wonder how that meeting went down. I wonder if there's two FBI agents, one sitting, looking at the other one, going, hey, this guy is not to be trusted he is a con man. And the other guy going, well, I don't know. I kind of believe him. Seems like a good guy. So what's interesting here, I think, is the continued the continued M.O. of Scott Kimball. Okay? Twice he finds himself behind bars. And when he does, it seems like he's coming up with these plans of, I'm going to turn on this guy or these guys. Mm-hmm. And what carrot do I have to dangle in front of the authorities? Because if you if you go to him, likely, look, this is all speculation here, but if I'm Scott Kimball and I go to him and I say, hey, this guy that I'm in a cell with or these guys that I overheard talking in the yard, um, they're going to kill some dude that you never heard of. Maybe he's a drug pusher or, or a check counterfeiter or, or somebody else, mm-hmm. some dude you never heard of. I have information on that. Scott's smart enough to know I need, that's not a big carrot. That's not a very big enough carrot to, to really help my situation. That seems to be all he's attempting to do. What do we see in the first case? He's turning on his cellmate saying, this guy was going to kill a judge. He was going to kill a prosecutor. He was going to kill witnesses. The, the department of justice and the, the law enforcement, the authorities, value the protection of witnesses like you wouldn't believe and they should very smartly so yeah correct and he's like he's gonna kill two witnesses and hire somebody to and then what is what do we see once he's once again in prison it's oh i heard i might have some information regarding the murder of the assistant u.s attorney tom wales so these are big carrots that he's coming up with and i it's almost like to me, like you pointed out, it's like, why, why would you, why would the FBI, why would these organizations get involved with this guy who clearly is a con man? It clearly is a scam artist. He's one, he's one of these people that he's behind bars because of what they would call paper cases where you can easily put together evidence against this individual because everything he stole or frauded people from was the result of of paper, a paper trail that he put together himself that you can apply to him and get the conviction. Mm-hmm. What we have here, though, is somebody going, look, we can, 
these are, this is a big cases. This is a big to do. This is violent. This is murder. This is judges, prosecutors, U.S. attorneys. This is big, a big deal. Maybe we deal with this little paper case guy because we, we need to prevent these big things from taking place. Right. We we're, we're after bigger fish is what I think you think is happening at the time. Now, as we said, the Wales case is unsolved. Um, apparently, it sounds to me like investigators suspect that, that Scott Kimball may have actually, he could have possibly been the shooter. There, There's some speculation as to that, Captain. I don't want to get too far into that, um, but I think the reason why they think that, there was a strange letter that shows up to the Seattle FBI office. Okay. This letter was postmarked from Las Vegas and dated January 3rd. In this letter, the writer said that he was the killer of Tom Wales. He said a woman hired him to shoot Wales. We will get into this much, much more later, but there is some good reason to possibly believe that Scott was passing through Las Vegas in January of 2006. So there's a chance that he wrote and mailed the letter. I, I, I'm getting a little confused in this story here as to what I believe is likely. I don't know that, that he may have been the shooter or if he's really just manipulating the system, because as said, it seems to me like all the information he was able to provide to the authorities regarding the murder of Wales, he could have found all that on the internet. Right. Which, if he's sitting behind bars and he gets use of a computer at the, uh, you know, when you go to the library or wherever, that he could have he could have found all of that information and well, heck, pieced with, it together. With some of these cells these days, they might have computers right in their cell. Well, keep in mind, like one of the one of the biggest problems that we have in uh, some of these prisons is the prisoners want to sneak in cell phones. They want to get a cell phone in there, one, because they can call whomever they want whenever they want, but also I would imagine you can get some kind of internet service as well. Right. Well, I know I have a friend that was complaining because it was their turn. They have a relative that's in jail, and it was their turn. They all decided as a family to help this individual uh, try to reform and, and better his life that they would get cable for his cell. So they pay like a monthly fee for this little TV that gets uh, cable mm-hmm. in the cell. So it's basically like a Netflix, uh, Netflix and chill behind bars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd just be sitting in there watching reruns of Monk and The Office constantly. I think real, unsolved mysteries, real punishment. You know, and I don't want to get in a whole debate of what prisoners should have and what they shouldn't have, because I actually I actually believe depending on what type of prison you are are in and what type of offender you are, mm. that that should vary. Maybe there's like a tier process, but it at least the the worst of the worst when they have cable, that angers me so badly. Um I think that the the real the real bad guys, you know what real punishment is? C SPAN, baby. You can watch C SPAN for that's all you get to see, and you get maybe 45 minutes of it a day. Tear your eyes out. Yeah, I think we should start off with uh, genital mutilation and then work up from there, you know, to really punish people. Well, so what does the Tom Wales murder and Scott Kimball's telling the feds that he had information on this case have to do with the bigger picture? Let's just say that, that his cooperation— and this is key. This is key to our story here, Captain. His cooperation with the authorities on the Wales case and also the Flowers case that we already went through, this is what would lead the FBI to turn him, turn to him again in another case down the road. And we will see that that will have devastating consequences. All right, Captain. So for those of you following along at home and for those of you who are completely lost, What we have here is we have Scott Lee Kimball, who has spent the last few years in and out of prison. He's been arrested for multiple different charges, 
and even in uh, different areas as well. So regarding the, the order of this, let's go to 2002 because there's going to be something very significant to the story that takes place in 2002. This, remember, Scott was arrested in Alaska for forging checks and because he escaped from that prison pre-release in Montana. In June, he is transferred to federal prison in Littleton, Colorado. This is because he told authorities that his life had been threatened by multiple inmates. This is because he's a snitch. By this point, he's snitched on his cellmates, uh, especially the we're talking about the Flowers case here. So Scott's history of cooperating with authorities would soon earn him another informant role and a prison release. In the fall of 2002, Scott reported to the FBI that his cellmate, a Steve Ennis, had asked Scott to murder another drug dealer. This guy's name is Jason Price who was going to testify against Steve Ennis. Ennis was doing 10 years in federal prison on drug charges for running a massive ecstasy distribution network, and the DEA was monitoring his activities carefully. Now, it's unclear what, if anything, Steve Ennis was really cooking up. Again, is this something that Steve Ennis was actually putting into place, or is this something that Scott Kimball is manufacturing? and providing bogus information in regards to. It seems possible that Steve might have made some noises about wanting this guy dead, and then Scott acted on that. Um, it's unclear what Steve thought Scott's role in Steve's plans were, because he wasn't supposed to be getting out anytime soon. So that's what's a little tricky here. How would Steve think that Scott could help him while they're both on the inside. And so this makes three times. Well, three, yeah. Th and that's why I kind of pointed out that I think it's a little strange that Steve would try to get Scott involved in this whole murder for hire plot. Because mm. how would Steve think that Scott could provide him any assistance in this when Scott is looking at doing almost as much time as, as Steve. Right. You, you know, you how's he going to get this going from the inside? Steve could probably get this going on his own from the inside. And we know how these prison populations work. This dude was already moved there because he's saying, hey, I'm being threatened because I, I'm a snitch. I've ratted out some other guys before. So Scott seems like the last person that an inmate would tell, hey, I'm thinking about killing this guy that's going to testify against me at trial. Right. This this rival uh, drug dealer or whatever you want to call him. I want this guy dead. It doesn't make sense that he would tell Scott. That's why I question here, Captain, is this something that Scott just totally manufactured all on his own because he's learned time and time again, and he's, he's executed this before where he goes, you know, what? I'm going to either make up this stuff about this guy or I'm going to rat on this dude over over real stuff. Either way, it's going to benefit me. And in this situation, it could get me out of prison very quickly. So that that's why I wanted to bring that up, because we got to keep in mind, even though he's becoming an informant and he's ratting on these dudes, is there a chance that he's just manufacturing all this stuff himself and putting the pieces together and then feeding it to the authorities? So really, this situation to me is very reminiscent of the Flowers case that we already discussed. Because somehow Scott got word to the FBI that his cellmate, Steve Ennis, was plotting to kill someone on the outside. And, and again, as I stated, this is another witness. Yeah. This is when the FBI it's like will. the same setup. Right. It's like, it, it's like you said, you can, you can watch his interviews. You can see him. You can listen to him speak. There's a brain in there. This guy is. Yeah, but there's also brains in the FBI agents. You would think they'd go, hey, this. This oh, seems familiar. Oh, I agree with you 100%. 100%. It's strange to me how this guy was able to make this work time and time again. But I, I do think he's probably pretty good at what he did, and that's no excuse. But it's also one of these things that he's like, Scott Kimball figured out, like, this works, and I'm going to keep doing it until it stops working. So 
What yeah. we have here right, is when a, he will when a known for- con man, a known criminal, guy that's suspected in other other crimes other than con man situations. The FBI, there's no excuse for that. There's no excuse for our FBI to be tricked. Oh, I'm not going to pretend it's completely dumb of them to believe him time and time again. I think what they're blinded by is what we pointed out earlier. This is a this is a paper case guy, pretty low level, who doesn't seem to be violent. I mean, we do have those allegations of things by his ex-wife, but there were never charges brought forward on any of that. So they're not seeing that stuff. But what what they're seeing is, oh, we got these bigger fish that we want to go after. Oh, they're seeing that stuff. They know that it happened and they know there was no charges. That 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 stuff doesn't just go away. The FBI would know that stuff or should know that stuff. You wouldn't have any record of it, though. I'm just saying they should. I'm just saying that RF, if, if there was a, a possible situation that their charges were never brought, that might not go on your criminal history, but that's not that's not the record that the FBI has of each individual in America. They're, they have a lot of data on you, on me, on every listener that's listening to the show. Well, regardless, this is going to be when the FBI formally will take on Scott Kimball as an actual informant. And this is going to earn Scott a release from prison. Yeah. Hold on. Cause if, if he fools you twice, might as well have him work for you. This takes place on December 18th, 2002, when Scott is released from prison in order to quote, actively cooperate with the FBI on the Stephen Ennis matter and quote, what was Scott's role in this whole thing? Well, he was ordered by FBI agent Carl Schlaff to pretend to be a man named Joseph Lee Scott. And the FBI was going to set him up with this new identity provided to him. Uh, and they gave him a birth certificate and a driver's license saying that he was in fact, Joseph Lee Scott. So Scott Kimball, who is now Joe Scott, he's put in charge of keeping an eye on Steve Ennis's girlfriend. Her name is Jennifer Markham. So Scott Kimball told authorities, this is how we get to Jennifer Markham. He told authorities that Jennifer Markham, Ennis's girlfriend, since she is the one on the outside, she is going to be the one that sets up this whole murder plot. I'm guessing that means Kimball told law enforcement that she was going to hire the killer. So Jennifer Markham was also a potential witness for the DEA in a large meth case. Mm -hmm. The short of it is Scott Lee Kimball is now out of prison, living under a new identity and working with the FBI. And all of this is going to turn into some very bad, bad business and fairly quickly. Now, before we wrap up here, Captain, we must give a big thank you and shout out to a website. This is scottleekimble.com. It's a website that is maintained by the Daily Camera, which is a Boulder, Colorado newspaper dating all the way back to 1890. That's right. Your great, great grandfather was reading the Daily Camera. Mm-hmm. The website was invaluable to our research and the site includes a timeline and links to numerous articles about the case. And if the name, the daily camera sounds familiar, longtime listeners will remember the daily camera was a great source for our six part John Benet Ramsey coverage, which took place in episodes 280 to 285. For more True Crime Garage, check out the free Stitcher app. It has all of our old episodes. And make sure you check out our other show. It's called Off the Record, and it's available on Stitcher Premium. Join us back here in the garage tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't let
here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. 